we're going to do that. And we'll, I don't know how long we'll be in Daniel chapter 9, a few weeks anyway, we'll say that. Uh, that way, a few doesn't have a definite amount, so we'll say a few. Uh, but anyway, um, the cool thing about prophecy, and one of the reasons I love to study it, uh, is that it can teach you so much more than just future events. Because I think most people, when they think of prophecy, they think, oh, he's going to tell us what's going to happen with something, right? That's what most of us think. But, you know, woven into the fabric of every prophecy is just tells us about the love of God and the faithfulness of God. There's just so many things about his very nature that's revealed to us through his prophecy. So we're going to jump right in today, uh, and we are in Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 20. Let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 23. Daniel says, Now while I was praying, or speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, on behalf of the holy mountain of God, uh, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Okay, so we're picking up here where we left off last week. If you remember, last week, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, and all of a sudden he had that epiphany moment where he's like reading this, this prophecy about how Israel would be, you know, disciplined and they would be put into captivity for 70 years. And all of a sudden he stops and thinks, wait a minute, that's like coming up really quick. I mean, we are almost there. So he starts praying uh, to God about, about the, the condition of the nation of Israel, and he's asking God to remember his promise, and he knew he would, um, but he was asking God to remember his promise, and he was just praying about what was going to happen next. So that's where we're picking up. Now, if you notice, when you see these first three verses, one thing that pops out is it says, the man Gabriel. Did you guys notice that? The man Gabriel. And that's because he appeared as a man. See, and Daniel recognized him, because Daniel had seen him in an earlier vision and understood that he was an angel, but he had appeared to him in chapter 8 in an earlier vision, especially this, this vision about the ram and the goat. In Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like what? Like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Eliah, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. So he had seen him before. Now, in the Old Testament, it was common for angels to appear as men, okay? And I'll give you some reasons why, but angels always appeared as men. Have you ever noticed, like, with all the artwork, it's like little fat babies in diapers with, you know, wings? Anyone ever noticed that? Well, here's the thing. Angels were always men in the Scripture, and the reason is, is the word angel in the Hebrew is malach. You have to have that at the end, right? Malach. And it, mean, it, it, it means angel or messenger, but it's in the masculine. It's always presented in the masculine. Now, the second reason we know that is they appeared as men because angels are a different creation. They're covered with the glory of God. They're just amazing. Now, we have instances in the Bible where people have seen the glory of God and fell like dead men. See, God's trying to convey a message when he sends these angels. That, I mean, their very name means messenger. And he didn't want to send his messenger and everybody pass out when they saw the glory of God. When they, so he made him appear as a man so that they would receive them. Because if he wouldn't have done that, they would have freaked out, just to be honest with you. That's why he made him come as a man. Now, in the Bible, there are only three angels who are actually mentioned by name. Gabriel, anybody know the other ones? Michael is another one. And there's another one. This is the one that a lot of people don't know. It's, it's Abaddon. Okay. Now, Lucifer obviously was an angel at one time, but we don't count him because he got the boot, right? <laughs> but 
Abaddon's the one that's mentioned. Now, Abaddon in the Hebrew is, is the Hebrew pronunciation. In the Greek, it's Apollyon. And what it means is destroyer. So Gabriel was God's messenger angel. And when Gabriel appeared, he usually brought good news. It was never really anything threatening when Gabriel brought it. It was usually good news. Uh, as a matter of fact, 500 years after he appeared to Daniel, he appeared to Mary to announce the coming birth of Christ. So he usually brought good news and, and messages uh, you know, of hope and messages to let people know what's going on. He was basically just a messenger angel. Now, Michael was an archangel. And what that means is chief of angels, right? And he led God's army. So he was a leader of God's armies. But when Michael appeared, and if you read through the scripture, when Michael appears, there is going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a conflict. When he appears, he's the leader of God's armies. He's an archangel. When he appears, there's going to be something happening pertaining to war or conflict. And that's just who he was. So the fact that, that Gabriel was present here reveals that God had something really, really important to say. Now, about this Abaddon, or Apollyon, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him, but he is uh, in Revelations 9-11, and he's considered the angel of the abyss, okay? And I'm tempted to go really in-depth into this, but I'm not going to. But Revelations 9-11, it said, They have uh, as king over them the angel of the abyss, and his name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. So when he appears, and this is going to be later on, way later, when he appears, he's going to bring complete destruction on the unbelievers. So that's something we'll go into at another time. So those are the angels mentioned. But remember, the only one that, that Daniel was having an encounter with was Gabriel. So it was something important God had to say to him. And Gabriel was supposed to give Daniel insight with understanding. Let's look at this. 9.22. It says, He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding, or insight with understanding. And begin, uh, at the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So notice that Gabriel said that Daniel was highly esteemed. Highly esteemed. What that means is it means valuable or important. So, I mean, if an angel says you're highly esteemed, you must be doing something right. Am I right? It says he's highly esteemed. He's very, very important to him. And I've had people ask me over the years, why was he highly esteemed? Why was he so valuable? Why was he so important? And the answer simply is he always remained faithful to God, no matter what. And, and that sounds easy to do. But remember, Daniel was taken into captivity in his youth. And he's pushing 90 here, and he is still in captivity. And he remained faithful to pray no matter what. Even if they were threatening to kill him, he prayed three times a day. He never turned his back on God. He wouldn't eat things that he wasn't supposed to eat uh, because of the law of God. He was, he was very, very faithful. They tried to take his life. They tried to, to trick him. So many things had happened in his life, yet he remained faithful and he trusted in God. And every time I read this, it kind of convicts me. You know what I mean? Because let's be honest, I'm not going to make you guys all admit this, but let's be honest, there are times... When something really not that big happens and we get angry and question why and wonder what God's, why God's allowing this. Anybody ever been there? And it kind of makes me feel like a big baby. You know, talking back about the angels in diapers, I kind of feel, you know, like that. Because there's times that I'll see like, I just can't believe all this is happening to me. And sometimes God will put it on my heart, really. How's your home? How's your children? How's your health? I don't think you have it as bad as you think you do. But Daniel... Most people that had his life 
would say, just take me, God. I am done with this. I've been a prisoner. Yes, I'm a prisoner with some authority in the kingdom, but I'm still a prisoner. I'm not home. You know, they, they're trying to kill me. They're always plotting against me. These people hate my guts. Why don't you just take my life? That's what you would think he would, he would be like, but he remained faithful no matter what. And that's why he was highly esteemed. And one thing you have to realize is God has always reserved blessings for those who will remain faithful. He has always, always done that. If you trust him in every situation, he will move in every situation. That's just the way it is. And the other thing, one of the biggest blessings that you get from being faithful is that God reveals things to you. That line of communication is crystal clear and open, and God is able to speak to you like he's speaking with Daniel here. And this is, I mean, still true today, and so true, because the only way you're actually going to ever understand God's word and understand God's ways is to ask for that revelation from him. You see, God sent an angel to reveal what was going to happen to Daniel. We have to have that revelation. Have you ever been reading something, and you're like, I have no idea what this is talking about. How many people have ever had that happen to them? You're reading along, and, and all of a sudden you stop and go, okay, I don't know what those last seven verses are remotely talking about. I mean, that happens to all of us. But the reason that happens is sometimes we just read because we're supposed to, rather than reading to actually gain something. So that's why I always tell people, listen, always pray before you read and ask God for understanding. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of your sin. Open that line of communication up like we talked about last week. And then ask him to give you understanding. I actually ask the Holy Spirit to give me understanding because that's his job, right? And when you do that, those, those things start to open up to you. James talks about this. James 1.5 says, uh, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will what? He'll what? He will give it to you. There's no conditions there. If you ask, he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Here's what it boils down to. If you really want to understand God's word, you can. You just have to ask for it and believe that he's able to do it. And when you are close to him and keeping that line of communication open, you'd be shocked how much more you'll be able to get out of the scriptures because God, the Holy Spirit, will be revealing that to you. But let's move on. Daniel 9.24. Now here we start getting into the good stuff. I hope you guys are taking notes if you're into prophecy because there's a lot of stuff we're going to cover and I can't cover it very quickly. But Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So first, there's one really important thing we've got to deal with here, and that's the word week, okay, the word week. And in the Hebrew, it's Shavuah, and what it means is it means a group of seven. It just means a group of seven. Now, when we think of that, we automatically think of seven days, don't we? But it literally just means a group of seven, and the Hebrews would use the word week like we use the word dozen, okay? So, like, if I tell you a dozen, what, am I, what number am I talking about? Twelve. Right? They'd say, how many bushels did you bring in? I brought a dozen in. The person would understand that's 12. In the Hebrew, they'd say, how many did you bring in? A week. And they would understand that they brought in seven bushels. It meant a group of seven. So you have to know that up front. It means a group of seven. Now, in this context, it's obvious when you read this that he's talking about 70 groups. Because he says 70 weeks, so we know it's 70 groups of seven years. Which is, for all you math people... That's days. It is 490 years. Okay? So 7 times 70, 490 years. Now, 
as we study this prophecy, we're going to find out why God is so specific and why I love this prophecy so much. It's very specific for a reason. We'll get into that eventually. So the first thing we want to talk about is there are six things, six things that it says here that this prophecy will reveal to Daniel. And it said first it would reveal uh, that he was going to finish the transgression. Finish the transgression. Now what that means, it's talking about Israel's transgression. This meant that he was going to put an end to the transgression of Israel because for years, as we read through the scriptures, they've been rejecting them. They've been fo- you know, dropping God and following idol gods and then they'd have to be disciplined. They'd come out of discipline. They'd get right back into it again. It makes me think of our kids, you know, when they're like four. You ever notice that? You'd get them out of one thing and they're right into something else. That happens at age four and like from 15 to 20 is when that happens. But this is what Israel was like. And so he had to put an end to that because he told Abraham that they were going to inherit the kingdom. He told him that. And he had to make sure that happened. So there had to be a time where the transgressions of Israel were put away or forgiven and put away. And that's going to take place after the second coming of Jesus. Because like I said last week, at the end of that tribulation period, they're going to realize that Jesus was what? He was the Messiah. They're going to figure it out through that tribulation period. And they're going to believe. And this, right before, right before the millennial kingdom, right after the tribulation period, that's going to be the sign of the end of the transgression of Israel because they're going to believe and God's going to forgive all their transgressions. So that's the, that's the end of the transgressions he was talking about there. It's talking uh, about Israel. Now, the second thing he said was he was going to make an end of sin. Make an end of sin. That translates to seal something up, right, is what that literally means meaning God will seal up all of Israel's sins. They're going to be completely taken care of. He's going to seal all of them up. The easiest way I can make you understand this is it's kind of like being in debt. And I know you guys probably don't know what debt's about, but for those of you who do, wouldn't it be nice if someone came in and said, don't worry about it, and wrote a check and paid for all your debt? How many people like pray that will happen or fantasize that that will happen? You know, I, I would love that to happen to me. But it's like somebody coming in and paying off all your debt. You're no longer accountable for any of that debt. This is what he's saying. He's saying to make an end of sin. He's saying that he's going to pay their debt in full. And that again is going to happen that same time frame when Israel turns back to Christ and believes. They will no longer be accountable for those sins. Now third, he said he's going to make atonement for iniquity. Make atonement for iniquity. Now the high point of the Jewish calendar was the Day of, Atone- of Atonement. This was the, the high point of their calendar. And it was that annual event where they would go and, and have uh, animal sacrifices that would cover them for the year. They would take the best they had and have it offered to cover their sin for one year. Because it was temporary. It couldn't cover them for good. It could only cover them for one year. It would cover their sin. Now, why was it temporary? Because the blood in those animals was temporary. Those animals would have died. So if the blood isn't eternal, it can't offer eternal redemption. So what we needed was we needed a sacrifice that had blood that was eternal. Enter Jesus, all God and all man. So the eternality of God enters the body of Jesus, the man, meaning his blood is eternal. His blood is eternal. So When Jesus became the Lamb of God, as John called him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when he became the Lamb of God and was crucified, those who trust in him have his eternal blood 
cover their sins forever. They don't have to keep coming back year after year. So the atonement spoken of here in verse 24 is the eternal blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about here. Again, they were going to believe in the Lamb of God, and they were going to have eternal forgiveness, eternal redemption. All right, now the fourth thing is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now this, is, this should be kind of easy, because let's be honest. It is impossible to have complete and eternal righteousness apart from God. So if he's going to usher in complete righteousness, if he's going to usher that in, it has to be dealing with God and the kingdom. Because when Christ comes back to set up this kingdom, he will reign. And during that kingdom is the only time in this world's history or future other than the kingdom where the leader will be completely righteous. Everything will be perfect. There'll be no lawyers to get people off on technicalities. None of that's going to happen. It will be completely, he will completely reign in righteousness. And this is just for telling that, that there was going to be a kingdom that would bring in everlasting righteousness. The next thing was to seal up vision and prophecy. And this one's actually kind of easy because what this is saying is that all the prophecies that spoke of the day, uh, the coming kingdom, all the prophecies that spoke of the coming Messiah, all those things would be fulfilled in Christ. And the moment Israel believed that would seal it up, it had accomplished it, all the prophecy was sealed up. It was done because it was accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. And then it says uh, to anoint the most holy place. And this is when Jesus returns to the new temple in the new kingdom. Because the one thing that was always missing in the temple that existed up to that time, the one thing that was always missing was the, was the Spirit of God, the, the presence of the Messiah. And here, the presence of the Messiah is going to return to the temple, and this is what this is talking about. So I know that's a lot, but that's what this vision is supposed to, supposed to do. It's supposed to explain to him when all these things are going to happen. Now here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets so specific. Because I love this prophecy because it, you can literally check it down to the day. I mean, it's amazing. All right, so let's take a look at this. Daniel 9.25. He says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's 69 weeks total. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So... The first 69 weeks begins at the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. But we have to be careful here because this decree is very specific. The angel said very specifically what would let you know the right decree was given, which one was right, because it had to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It had to come with plaza and moat. Everything had to be rebuilt, even the temple, right? And it had to happen in times of distress. So that's how you would know it was the right one because there are a ton of decrees that were issued that were similar and the secular world loves to grab onto those and say well i found that decree and i added the days up and it doesn't add up so you're wrong i'm like yeah except you got the wrong decree right if you find the right decree and there were several of them like uh in 538 bc cyrus uh released a decree that said that they would just release the jews and a lot of people thought oh well the jews will go back and they'll rebuild and restore it doesn't say that so you can't assume that. So since it doesn't give the spe specific criteria, you can rule that one out. Then Darius issued a decree in 519 B.C. that allowed the rebuilding of the temple. And a lot of people jumped on that and said, here's the kickoff. 
The problem was it didn't say anything about restoring Jerusalem. It didn't say anything about all the other specifics that were in that, uh, in that prophecy. So we know that this wasn't it. And then Artaxerxes in 458, there's a child, there's a boy name if you guys are looking for one if you're about to have a baby. Artaxerxes, and you could call him Art, wouldn't that be cool? But anyway, so Artaxerxes issues a decree in 458 BC, and a lot of people go back to that and say, well, this had to be the one. But it wasn't, because it didn't allow for the rebuilding of the temple with plaza and moat. You see, he gave us all those specifics for a reason. So finally, Artaxerxes issued another decree. Now listen to this. This decree was issued March 14th, 445 BC. History teaches us that. That's when this decree was issued. And this decree allowed for everything that Gabriel specified. All of it. Word for word. So we know that this was the kickoff, March 14th, 445 B.C. This kicked off the 70-week prophecy. Okay, now here's something else that's pretty interesting. We also have to remember that Gabriel never said the 70 years were consecutive. He never said they would happen all back to back to back. He never said that right now they're like a big cosmic stopwatch god can start it and stop it whenever he wants to but here's the deal god will tell us when he's going to stop it and start it okay so it's not consecutive like for instance if you look in verse 25 it mentions two time spans it says seven weeks which is what 49 years and it says and 62 weeks okay and 62 weeks which is 434 years so they're listed back to back. But since he doesn't say that there's any stop between those two, then you have to realize those are consecutive. Those run consecutively, right? Now, and a lot of people say, then why did he separate them? Why did he say seven weeks and 62 weeks? And the answer is actually pretty simple because there were specific events that happened during that time frame that had to be labeled by a time frame because they were prophesied to happen that way. For, for instance, the first 49 years, when they rebuilt Jerusalem, it took to the day 49 years. So that was to mark the event of the finishing of rebuilding the temple. The first seven weeks, the first 49 years, was to the day when they finished Jerusalem. And this is taken into account that the Jewish year has 360 days. All right, has 360 days. And it's not like our calendar. We're on the Gregorian calendar. They weren't on that calendar. Okay, that's according to their calendar. Now, here's where it really gets cool. Right, so it says from the issuing of the decree to Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks. Messiah the Prince is when Jesus has his triumphal entry and they're saying Hosanna in the highest and they're throwing palm branches in front of him. You guys remember that part, right? This is when he is announced Hosanna this is when he's announced as Messiah the Prince. People are calling out his name. But from the issuing of that decree, right, from the issuing when that happened, to when he came in, to, or when he, when he came in, uh, in his triumphal entry, that time frame is exactly, exactly the 69 weeks. I mean, exactly. It's amazing. I mean, we're talking... 434 years after. It's, it's just amazing how accurate it is. Now, there was a guy named uh, Sir Robert Anderson, and he was a highly esteemed English lawyer, and a, he was the former head of Scotland Yard. So this guy was very highly looked up to, and he decided he was going to do the math. He wanted to know if it really worked out, but he did his homework. I mean, he did it right. So he multiplied. You guys ready for this? All you math nerds, you're going to love this. The rest of you write it down. 
I'm just saying. That would be me. Okay, so he multiplied 483 years. That's 69 weeks. 483 years times the Jewish prophetic year. 360 days, right? And he found that 483 Jewish years came up to 173,880 days. Okay, that'll be on the test. 173,880 days. Then he took the date of the decree, March 14th, 445 B.C., and calculated the number of days to the triumphal entry, which was April 6, 32 A.D. Okay, he took that and he calculated that. Now, he took into account leap year, right? He added that in, which a lot of critics, when they figure it out, they don't do that. So he, he took into account leap year and the fact that there were only one year between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. because there's no year numbered zero. I don't know why, but there's no year numbered zero. But wouldn't it be cool to be born on that year? When were you born? Zero. Zero what? Nothing. Just zero. Right? So since there's no zero, he took that into account. And after he took all those factors into account, he did the math. Now remember, 173,880 days is what it has to be from the issuing of the decree to, to the entry uh, in that triumphal entry. And the total, after all those factors he added in, was 173,880 days to the day that prophecy was right. And he silenced a lot of critics at that time because a lot of the critics hadn't added in all the criteria they needed to add in, like the Jewish calendar year and taking out leap year and remembering there's no, there's no year numbered zero. So you talk about a perfect prophecy, it's exactly 483 years. That's 69 weeks. I just think that's amazing. So when you figure that up, you know by figuring that, that everything else is going to be that accurate too, right? But as we're going to see next week, there's going to be a span between the 69th and 70th year. Remember I told you that, or 70th week, remember I told you that it was like a stopwatch, but he'll tell you when he's stopping it? Next week, we're going to take a look at that. I don't want to go into that today, but we'll describe what's going to happen in this, in this undetermined amount of time between the 69th and 70th week. But there's so much application here that I wanted to talk about. Because applying prophecy to our life seems like something that's not easy to do. You know, trying to find a way to take prophecy and apply it to your life. But there are ways to do it in very important ways. And first of all, it should make us confident. Because God always keeps his promise. The first time I studied this out and did the math myself, I just, I like jumped up from the table and like, oh my gosh. It's, it's to the day. You know, it's to the day. I don't think everybody else was impressed as I was, but I was amazed. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is to the day correct. I just read something that was prophecy that I can actually prove already happened. I was just amazed by that. So it shouldn't make us confident because if God kept that promise, wouldn't he keep any other promise he made? Wouldn't you think he would? Like when he said that, that he's faithful to all those who love him and are called according to his name. You know that one? Where it says that, he won't, you know, that he'll watch over and protect those who are faithful and called according to his name. If he kept this promise, you know he's going to keep that promise. Right? I mean, other promises he made, like he'll never leave you or forsake you. Right? And with every temptation, he'll make a way what? Out of it. He'll make a way out of every temptation. You know what the problem is? I had someone tell me one time, well, that's not true. And I'm like, okay, it always, it's always weird when you start off a conversation with somebody saying God is a liar. You know, that's, that's a tough discussion to have. But you've got to be peaceful, and I can be that every once in a while. So they say, that's just not true. That, I mean, that doesn't actually happen because I've been tempted a lot and I, and I just gave into it. 
I'm like, no, the, the prophecy's true. You've got to look for the way out. You know, you've got to look for the way out. If, if God puts three doors to escape, and you're so distracted, you walk right past all three doors. He kept his promise. You didn't keep your end. You see what I mean? You have to look for a way out. But so many times when temptation comes on us, I mean, we give in and we kind of want to be there. So are we, really, are we really looking for a way out? I mean, not really, right? So if we know that he'll keep his prophecy and the promises he made in that prophecy, we know that he's going to keep the promises he made in every other area. Now, the second thing way we can apply this is verse 24 reminds us of God's faithfulness despite what we do. Here's the big thing. There's a lot of doctrines out there that teach a lot of different things, and I can, you know, I can coexist with just about any of them as long as it's not you know, falsely talking about the grace of God or something like that. But here's the one that, that really gets to me. If you watch this, Israel rejected him time and time again. Despite that rejection, despite their apostasy, literally just turning their back on God and worshiping idol gods. And this wasn't the, I mean, this wasn't something that happened occasionally. It always happened. Remember when Moses went up the mountain to get the tablets? I mean, this was a very significant event for them. They should have been excited and, and chomping at the bit for him to come back down the mountain. Well, he's gone for a while, and they start thinking, hmm, maybe he's dead. So what do they do? Do they pray? Do they, go in, do, they, do they try to build a tabernacle and go in and, no. You know what they do? They take their nose rings. Yes, men wore nose rings back then, just throwing it out there. They took their nose rings, their earrings, their gold chains, every kind of gold they had, and they melted it down and made a cow that they could worship. And Aaron allowed it, Moses' brother. And Moses comes down the mountain, and he goes, Seriously? I went up there to get the tablets from God. This is the word of God he was bringing to you. And I come down and you're worshiping a golden cow? And I love what Aaron does because Aaron acts like he had no idea. And Aaron just lies like a little kid is what he does. He's like, weirdest thing, Moses. We just threw this gold in the fire and boom, that came out. Which was a dirt lie. That did not happen. But I mean, from the very inception, we're talking back when they were just coming out of Egypt, they were constantly rejecting him. They were constantly in apostasy. And yet, yet he still made a way for them to have a chance. No matter how bad they'd been, no matter how much they had rejected him. And this should remind us that God desires to redeem everybody. And there's a lot of doctrines out there that teach that's not the case, that he only wants to redeem a certain few. That's just a lie. There's a lot of doctrines out there that say that once you believe, if you make a mistake, he'll take your eternal life from you. That also is a lie. Because we see here that God loves us eternally and wants to deliver us eternally. And despite all Israel's rejections, he still made a way through all this prophecy that they would come back into a relationship with him. And they do. Because God doesn't care about how bad you've been. God doesn't care how bad you currently are. None of that means anything to God. If you are willing to believe, he is willing to forgive. And that's something we see here. Because we're talking, he is bringing this prophecy about Israel being restored while they're in captivity because they rejected God, because they went after idol gods. They were still in captivity. And he's saying, I just want to let you know, I am going to redeem Israel. And he gives this amazing prophecy, and that should give us so much confidence. Having a God that loves you despite you, isn't that amazing? And here's the thing, you know, as, as Christians, we get a little self-righteous, don't we? I mean, let's just be honest. And 
when we're around other people, we don't always show the side that only you and God know. You know what I'm talking about? The side that, you know, God knows what happens in the shed when you hit your finger with a hammer. Right? Everybody in church may not know that. God knows what happens when someone cuts you off in traffic for those crazy people with road rage. <laughs> me. Right? My wife always tells me, very godly, pastor, <laughs> when we're driving. And I'm like, shut it! Because that's what godly men say to their wives. But God knows that person in me. God knows the person who has those thoughts that you wouldn't share with anybody. You know what I'm talking about? Those, those, the anger that goes through us, the hate that we're capable of. God knows all those things. And despite knowing those things, he still loves us, still offers redemption and forgiveness to all of us. Even believers, when we make those mistakes, that's a pretty way of saying when we sin, right? He still offers forgiveness so that we can be back in fellowship with him. And this is something, when you read prophecy, when you see God's word coming true right in front of you, it should inspire you that, God is going to be just as faithful to you as he was when we read these passages, as we see him in the lives of the people in Scripture. Right now, next week, we're going to go more in depth to that, and we might even take a look. I'm still praying about this. We might even take a look uh, at how that happened, at that rebuilding and restoring of Jerusalem. I've got to pray about that. There's a lot there. But we're going to get deeper into this span between the 69th and 70th week. We're going to get deeper into that. And then we might even get to the 70th week. Which you guys remember what that was? The 70th week is what? Anybody remember? Tribulation. Thanks, one of you. All the rest of you, wake up. Right? And some of the stuff we're going to learn in here will blow your mind. There is so much in here that is going to just touch you because you'll know how real it is because you'll have seen some of these things. Okay? So make sure you don't miss. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your heads. You always like to give an invitation. So if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, well, every head is down. This is just an opportunity for us to pray for you. Not going to point you out. We're not trying to trick you into doing anything. We want to give you an opportunity to act on how God's word has moved. So if there's someone here who would like us to pray for them because they're not sure where they stand, just make eye contact and put your head right back. Bless those people right back down. Bless those people, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to email you. Send you flyers. I'm just going to pray for you. Because I figure the Holy Spirit can work in you much more effectively than I can. And as for believers, you know, when we read this prophecy, when we read prophecy in general, it should put a fire in us to realize that this world doesn't last forever. We do have a job to do while we're here because it will come to an end. I just want to pray that, that we reignite that passion in us to reach people because that's what we're here for. Sometimes we get lost in doing church and we forget that we do church to reach people, to grow people, to engage, to equip, and to encourage people. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love. I just thank you for your mercy, your compassion. I'm just amazed that you can love people like us, and I'm thankful you do. Lord, as we read what's coming, I find this comfort, and that used to scare me. But now, I look forward to your return. Because of your grace and your mercy, I know I have something to look forward to and nothing to fear. I just pray, God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I just pray that you would remove that doubt or whatever's holding them back. Let them just trust that what Jesus did was enough. 
to guarantee their eternal life. And your word promises if they do that, they'll have it. Lord, there is so much room left in your kingdom, and we hope to see those boundaries expanded. Please give your people a renewed passion and zeal to reach others with this eternity-changing message with the gospel. Give us a passion to share that. Let us live lives that glorify and reflect your goodness to people so that they'll desire that also. God, let us remember that we've been blessed beyond belief, especially in this country. And because of that alone, we should be more faithful. We just pray that you would go with us as we leave here, keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.